Chapters seven and eight of Mike. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mike, a public school story by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter seven in which Mike is discussed. Trevor and Clowes of Donaldson's were sitting in their study a week after the gramophone incident, preparatory to going on the river. At least, Trevor was in the study getting tea ready, Clowes was on the window-sill, one leg in the room, the other outside hanging over space. He loved to sit in this attitude, watching someone else work, and giving his views on life to whoever would listen to them. Clowes was tall, and looked sad, which he was not. Trevor was shorter, and very much in earnest over all that he did. On the present occasion he was measuring out tea, with a concentration worthy of a general planning a campaign. "'One for the pot,' said Clowes. "'All right,' breathed Trevor. "'Come and help you, slacker.' "'Too busy.' "'You aren't doing a stroke.' "'My lad, I'm thinking of life. That's a thing you couldn't do.' I often say to people, "'Good chap, Trevor, but can't think of life. Give him a teapot and half a pound of butter to mess about with,' I say, and he's all right. But when it comes to deep thought, where is he? Among the also-rans. That's what I say.' "'Silly ass,' said Trevor, slicing bread. "'What particular rot were you thinking about just then? What fun it was, sitting back and watching other fellows work, I should think.' My mind at the moment, said Clowes, was tensely occupied with the problem of brothers at school. Have you got any brothers, Trevor? One, couple of years younger than me. I say, we shall want some more jam tomorrow. Better order it today. See it done, Tigellinus, as our old pal Nero used to remark. Where is he? Your brother, I mean. Marlborough? That shows your sense. I have always had a high opinion of your sense, Trevor. If you'd been a silly ass, you'd have let your people send him here. Why not? Shouldn't have minded. I withdraw what I said about your sense. Consider it unsaid. I have a brother myself, aged fifteen. Not a bad chap in his way, like the heroes of the school stories. Big blue eyes literally bubbling over with fun. At least I suppose it's fun to him. Cheeks, what I call it. My people wanted to send him here. I lodged a protest. I said, one clause is ample for any public school. You were right there, said Trevor. I said, one clause is luxury, two excess. I pointed out that I was just on the verge of becoming rather a blood at Ricken, and that I didn't want the work of years spoiled by a brother who would think it a rag to tell fellows who respected and admired me, such as who, anecdotes of a checkered infancy. There are stories about me which only my brother knows. Did I want them spread about the school? No, laddie, I did not. Hence we see my brother two terms ago packing up his little box and tooling off to rugby. And here am I at Ricken, with an unstained reputation, loved by all who know me, revered by all who don't, courted by boys, fawned upon by masters, people's faces brighten when I throw them a nod, if I frown. Oh, come on, said Trevor. Bread and jam and cake monopolized Clowes's attention for the next quarter of an hour. At the end of that period, however, he returned to his subject. After the serious business of the meal was concluded, and a simple hymn had been sung by those present, he said, Mr. Clowes resumed his very interesting remarks. We were on the subject of brothers at school. Now, take the melancholy case of Jackson Brothers. My heart bleeds for Bob. "'Jackson's all right. What's wrong with him? 
Besides, naturally young Jackson came to Rickon when all his brothers had been here. What a rotten argument! It's just the one used by chaps people, too. They think how nice it will be for all the sons to have been at the same school. It may be all right after they've left, but while they're there it's the limit. You say Jackson's all right. At present, perhaps he is, but the term's hardly started yet. Well, look here. What's at the bottom of this sending young brothers to the same school as elder brothers? Elder brothers can keep an eye on him, I suppose. That's just it. For once in your life you've touched the spot. In other words, Bob Jackson is practically responsible for the kid. That's where the whole rotten trouble starts. Why? Well, what happens? He either lets the kid rip, in which case he may find himself any morning in the pleasant position of having to explain to his people exactly why it is that little Willie has just received the boot and why he didn't look after him better, or he spends all his spare time shadowing him to see that he doesn't get into trouble. He feels that his reputation hangs on the kid's conduct, so he broods over him like a policeman, which is pretty rotten for him and maddens the kid, who looks on him as no sportsman. Bob seems to be trying the first way, which is what I should do myself. It's all right so far, but as I said, the term's only just started. Young Jackson seems all right. What's wrong with him? He doesn't stick on side anyway, which he might easily do considering his cricket. There's nothing wrong with him in that way. I've talked to him several times at the nets, and he's very decent. But his getting into trouble hasn't anything to do with us. It's the masters you've got to consider. What's up? Does he rag? From what I gather from fellows in his form, he's got a genius for ragging. Thinks of things that don't occur to anybody else and does them, too. He never seems to be an extra. One always sees him about on half-holidays. That's always the way with that sort of chap. He keeps on wriggling out of small rows till he thinks he can do anything he likes without being dropped on, and then all of a sudden he finds himself up to the eyebrows in a record smash. I don't say young Jackson will land himself like that. All I say is that he's just the sort who does. He's asking for trouble. Besides, who do you see him about with all the time? He's generally with Wyatt when I meet him. Yes, well then... "'What's wrong with Wyatt? He's one of the decentest men in the school.' "'I know, but he's working up for a tremendous row one of these days, unless he leaves before it comes off. The odds are, if Jackson's so thick with him, that he'll be roped into it, too. Wyatt wouldn't land him if he could help it, but he probably wouldn't realize what he was letting the kid in for. For instance, I happen to know that Wyatt breaks out of his dorm every other night. I don't know if he takes Jackson with him. I shouldn't think so.' "'but there's nothing to prevent Jackson following him on his own, "'and if you're caught at that game, it's the boot every time.' "'Trevor looked disturbed. "'Somebody ought to speak to Bob.' "'What's the good? Why worry him? "'Bob couldn't do anything. "'You'd only make him do the policeman business, "'which he hasn't time for, "'and which is bound to make rows between them. "'Better leave him alone. "'I don't know it would be a beastly thing for Bob "'if the kid did get into a really bad row.' "'If you must tell anybody, tell the Gazeka. "'He is head of Wayne's and has got far more chance of keeping an eye on Jackson than Bob has. "'The Gazeka is a fool. "'All front teeth and side. Still, he's on the spot. "'But what's the good of worrying? It's nothing to do with us anyhow. "'Let's stagger out, shall we?' "'Trevor's conscientious nature, however, made it impossible for him to drop the matter.' 
It disturbed him all the time that he and Clowes were on the river, and walking back to the house he resolved to see Bob about it during preparation. He found him in his study, oiling a bat. "'I say, Bob,' he said, "'look here. Are you busy?' "'No. Why?' "'It's this way. Clowes and I were talking. If Clowes was there, he was probably talking. Well, about your brother.' "'Oh, by Jove!' said Bob, sitting up. "'That reminds me. I forgot to get the evening paper. Did he get his century all right?' "'Who?' asked Trevor, bewildered. "'My brother, J.W. He'd made sixty-three not out against Kent in this morning's paper. What happened?' "'I didn't get a paper, either. I didn't mean that, brother. I meant the one here. "'Oh, Mike? What's Mike been up to?' "'Nothing as yet that I know of. But I say, you know, he seems a great pal of Wyatt's.' "'I know. I spoke to him about it.' "'Oh, you did. That's all right, then.' "'Not that there's anything wrong with Wyatt.' "'Not a bit. Only he is rather mucking about this term, I hear. "'It's his last, so I suppose he wants to have a rag.' "'Don't blame him.' "'Nor do I. Rather rot, though, if he lugged your brother into a row by accident. "'I should get blamed. I think I'll speak to him again. "'I should, I think.' "'I hope he isn't idiot enough to go out at night with Wyatt. "'If Wyatt likes to risk it, all right. That's his lookout. "'But it won't do for Mike to go playing the goat, too.' "'Clowes suggested putting Furby Smith on to him. "'He'd have more chance, being in the same house, "'of seeing that he didn't come a mucker than you would.' "'I've done that. Smith said he'd speak to him.' "'That's all right, then. Is that a new bat?' "'Got it to-day. Smashed my other yesterday against the schoolhouse.' "'Donaldson's had played a friendly with the schoolhouse during the last two days, and had beaten them. "'I thought I heard it go. You were rather in form. "'Better than at the beginning of the term, anyhow. I simply couldn't do a thing then, "'but my last three innings have been thirty-three not out, eighteen, and fifty-one. "'I should think you're bound to get your first all right. "'Hope so. I see Mike's playing for the second against the O.W.'s. "'Yes, pretty good for his first term.' "'You have a pro to coach you in the holidays, don't you?' "'Yes, I didn't go to him much this last time. I was away a lot. But Mike fairly lived inside the net.' "'Well, it's not been chucked away. I suppose he'll get his first next year. There'll be a big clearing out of colours at the end of this term. Nearly all the first are leaving. Henfrey'll be captain, I expect. Saunders, the pro at home, always says that Mike's going to be the star cricketer of the family. Better than J.W. even, he thinks.' I asked him what he thought of me, and he said, "'You'll be making a lot of runs some day, Mr. Bob. "'There's a subtle difference, isn't there? "'I shall have Mike cutting me out before I leave school if I'm not careful.' "'Sort of infant prodigy,' said Trevor. "'Don't think he's quite up to it yet, though.' He went back to his study, and Bob, having finished his oiling and washed his hands, started on his Thucydides, and in the stress of wrestling with the speech of an apparently delirious Athenian general— whose remarks seemed to contain nothing even remotely resembling sense and coherence, he allowed the question of Mike's welfare to fade from his mind like a dissolving view. CHAPTER Eight: A ROW WITH THE TOWN The beginning of a big row, one of those rows which turn a school upside down like a volcanic eruption, and provide old boys with something to talk about when they meet for years, is not unlike the beginning of a thunderstorm. 
You are walking along one seemingly fine day, when suddenly there is a hush, and there falls on you from space one big drop. The next moment the thing has begun, and you are standing in a shower-bath. It is just the same with a row. Some trivial episode occurs, and in an instant the place is in a ferment. It was so with the great picnic at Ricken. The bare outlines of the beginning of this affair are included in a letter which Mike wrote to his father on the Sunday following the old Rickinian matches. This was the letter. Dear Father, thanks awfully for your letter. I hope you are quite well. I have been getting on all right at cricket lately. My scores since I wrote last have been zero in a scratch game. The sun got in my eyes just as I played and I got bold. Fifteen for the third against an eleven of masters, without G. B. Jones, the Surrey man, and Spence. Twenty-eight not out in the under-sixteen game, and thirty in a form match. Rather decent. Yesterday one of the men put down for the second against the O.W.'s second couldn't play, because his father was very ill. So I played. Wasn't it luck? It's the first time I've played for the second. I didn't do much, because I didn't get an innings. They stop the cricket on O.W. matches day because they have a lot of rotten Greek plays and things which take up a frightful time, and half the chaps are acting. So we stop from lunch to four. Rot, I call it. So I didn't go in because they won the toss and made 215, and by the time we'd made 140 for six it was close of play. They'd stuck me in eighth wicket. Rather rot. Still, I may get another shot and I made rather a decent catch at mid-on, low down. I had to dive for it. Bob played for the first, but didn't do much. He was run out after he'd got ten. I believe he's rather sick about it. Rather a rummy thing happened after lock-up. I wasn't in it, but a fellow called Wyatt, awfully decent chap, he's Wayne's stepson, only they bar one another, told me about it. He was in it all right. There's a dinner after the matches on O.W. Day, and some of the chaps were going back to their houses after it when they got into a row with a lot of brickies from the town, and there was rather a row. There was a policeman mixed up in it somehow, only I don't quite know where he comes in. I'll find out and tell you next time I write. Love to everybody. Tell Marjorie I'll write to her in a day or two. Your loving son, Mike. P.S. I say, I suppose you couldn't send me five bob, could you? I'm rather broke. P.P.S. Half a crown would do, only I'd rather it was five bob. And on the back of the envelope, these words. Or a bob would be better than nothing. The outline of the case was as Mike had stated, but there were certain details of some importance which had not come to his notice when he sent the letter. On the Monday they were public property. The thing had happened after this fashion. At the conclusion of the day's cricket, all those who had been playing in the four elevens which the school put into the field against the old boys, together with the school choir, were entertained by the headmaster to supper in the great hall. The banquet, lengthened by speeches, songs, and recitations which the reciters imagined to be songs, lasted, as a rule, till about ten o'clock, when the revellers were supposed to go back to their houses by the nearest route and turn in. This was the official program. The school usually performed it with certain modifications and improvements. About midway between Rick and the school and Rick and the town, there stands on an island in the centre of the road a solitary lamp-post. 
It was the custom, and had been the custom, for generations back, for the diners to trudge off to this lamp-post, dance round it for some minutes, singing the school song, or whatever happened to be the popular song of the moment, and then race back to their houses. Antiquity had given the custom a sort of sanctity, and the authorities, if they knew, which they must have done, never interfered. But there were others— Rick in the town was peculiarly rich in gangs of youths. Like the vast majority of the inhabitants of the place, they seemed to have no work of any kind whatsoever to occupy their time, which they used accordingly to spend prowling about and indulging in a mild, brainless, rural type of hooliganism. They seldom proceeded to practical rowdyism, and never, except with the school. As a rule, they amused themselves by shouting rude chaff, the school regarded them with a lofty contempt, much as an Oxford man regards the townee. The school was always anxious for a row, but it was the unwritten law that only in special circumstances should they proceed to active measures. A curious dislike for school-in-town rows, and most misplaced severity in dealing with the offenders when they took place, were among the few flaws in the otherwise admirable character of the headmaster of Ricken. It was understood that one scragged bargees at one's own risk, and, as a rule, it was not considered worth it. But after an excellent supper and much singing and joviality, one's views are apt to alter. Risks, which before supper seemed great, show a tendency to dwindle. When, therefore, the twenty or so Rickinians who were dancing round the lamp-post were aware, in the midst of their festivities, that they were being observed and criticised by an equal number of townees, and that the criticisms were, as usual, essentially candid and personal, they found themselves forgetting the headmaster's prejudices, and feeling only that these outsiders must be put to the sword as speedily as possible for the honour of the school. Possibly, if the town brigade had stuck to a purely verbal form of attack, all might yet have been peace. Words can be overlooked. But tomatoes cannot. No man of spirit can bear to be pelted with overripe tomatoes for any length of time without feeling that if the thing goes on much longer he will be reluctantly compelled to take steps. In the present crisis the first tomato was enough to set matters moving. As the two armies stood facing each other in silence under the dim and mysterious rays of the lamp, it suddenly whizzed out from the enemy's ranks and hit Wyatt on the right ear. There was a moment of suspense— Wyatt took out his handkerchief and wiped his face, over which the succulent vegetable had spread itself. "'I don't know how you fellows are going to pass the evening,' he said quietly. "'My idea of a good after-dinner game is to try and find the chap who threw that. Anybody coming?' For the first five minutes it was as even a fight as one could have wished to see. It raged up and down the road without a pause, now in a solid mass, now splitting up into little groups. The science was on the side of the school. Most Rickinians knew how to box to a certain extent. But at any rate, at first, it was no time for science. To be scientific, one must have an opponent who observes at least the more important rules of the ring. It is impossible to do the latest ducks and hooks taught you by the instructor if your antagonist butts you in the chest and then kicks your shins, while some dear friend of his, of whose presence you had no idea, hits you at the same time on the back of the head. The greatest expert would lose his science in such circumstances. Probably what gave the school the victory in the end was the righteousness of their cause. They were smarting under a sense of injury, 
and there is nothing that adds a force to one's blows and a recklessness to one's style of delivering them more than a sense of injury. Wyatt, one side of his face still showing traces of the tomato, led the school with a vigor that could not be resisted. He very seldom lost his temper, but he did draw the line at bad tomatoes. Presently the school noticed that the enemy were vanishing little by little into the darkness which concealed the town. Barely a dozen remained, and their lonely condition seemed to be borne in upon these by a simultaneous brain-wave, for they suddenly gave the fight up and stampeded as one man. The leaders were beyond recall, but two remained, tackled low by Wyatt and Clowes after the fashion of the football field. The school gathered round its prisoners, panting. The scene of the conflict had shifted, little by little, to a spot some fifty yards from where it had started. By the side of the road at this point was a green, depressed-looking pond. Gloomy in the daytime, it looked unspeakable at night. It struck Wyatt, whose finer feelings had been entirely blotted out by tomato, as an ideal place in which to bestow the captives. "'Let's chuck em in there,' he said." The idea was welcomed gladly by all except the prisoners. A move was made towards the pond, and the procession had halted on the brink when a new voice made itself heard. "'Now then,' it said, "'what's all this?' A stout figure in policeman's uniform was standing surveying them with the aid of a small bull's-eye lantern. "'What's all this?' "'It's all right,' said Wyatt. "'All right, is it? What's on?' One of the prisoners spoke. "'Make em leave hold of us, Mr. Butt. "'They are going to chuck us in the pond.' "'Ho!' said the policeman, with a change in his voice. "'Ho, are they? "'Come now, young gentleman, a lark's a lark, "'but you ought to know where to stop.' "'It's anything but a lark,' said Wyatt, "'in the creamy voice he used when feeling particularly savage. "'We're the strong right arm of justice. "'That's what we are. "'This isn't a lark. "'It's an execution.' "'I don't want none of your lip, whoever you are,' said Mr. Butt understanding but dimly, and suspecting impudence by instinct. "'This is quite a private matter,' said Wyatt. "'You run along on your beach. You can't do anything here.' "'Ho!' "'Shove em in, you chaps.' "'Stop!' from Mr. Butt. "'Oo-er!' from prisoner number one. There was a sounding splash as willing hands urged the first of the captives into the depths. He ploughed his way to the bank, scrambled out, and vanished." Wyatt turned to the other prisoner. "'You'll have the worst of it going in second. He'll have churned up the mud a bit. Don't swallow more than you can help, or you'll go getting typhoid. I expect there are leeches and things there, but if you nip out quick they may not get on to you. Carry on, you chaps.' It was here that the regrettable incident occurred. Just as the second prisoner was being launched, Constable Butt, determined to assert himself even at the eleventh hour, sprang forward and seized the captive by the arm. A drowning man will clutch at a straw. A man about to be hurled into an excessively dirty pond will clutch at a stout policeman. The prisoner did. Constable Butt represented his one link with dry land. As he came within reach, he attached himself to his tunic with the vigor and concentration of a limpet. At the same moment, the executioners gave their man the final heave. The policeman realized his peril too late. A medley of noises made the peaceful night hideous. A howl from the townee, a yell from the policeman, a cheer from the launching party, a frightened squawk from some birds in a neighbouring tree, and a splash compared with which the first had been as nothing, and all was over. 
The dark waters were lashed into a maelstrom, and then two streaming figures squelched up the further bank. The school stood in silent consternation. It was no occasion for light apologies. "'Do you know?' said Wyatt, as he watched the law shaking the water from itself on the other side of the pond. "'I'm not half sure that we hadn't better be moving.' End of chapter 8 End of section